Hello, and welcome to Split Opinion with Flora Gill and Amber Rudd. Flora, I think you'll find it's Amber Rudd first. And shouldn't you tell people who we are? Okay, uh, with journalist Flora Gill and failed politician Amber Rudd. (laughs) Or more like the right honourable Amber Rudd and her nobody daughter. Okay, wow, taking that to therapy. Each week we'll be discussing topics that split opinion and we'll be trying to convince each other to change their mind. That's right, because here at Split Opinion, we think changing your mind should be celebrated. Too often today, people refuse to listen to the other side and have become very dogmatic in their positions. That's something I learned a lot about in the past few years in politics. So we'll be looking at items that have changed our mindset in the last week before picking a subject to delve into. Sometimes they'll be serious, like drug legalisation and prostitution. Other times they'll be less so, like telly and thongs. But we won't be doing it alone. We'll be joined by a guest, an expert, who can help each of us win our particular case. So without further ado, let's get started. So today our main topic of the day is talking about cancel culture and whether you can make jokes about anything anymore. I don't really understand cancel culture, I'm afraid, and Flora's going to explain it to me later. Yeah, we'll come on to uh, helping mum understand that. Thank you. I feel like I'm quite a biased explainer, but anyway. (laughs) um, We'll be joined by Camilla Long, the journalist and critic, who also gets quite a lot of criticism herself for her opinions. And then after that, we'll be joined by comedian Catherine Ryan to talk to us about the comedy side of it as well. But first, let's talk about our mini topics that have made us change our minds this week. So, mum, why don't you start us off? Books. This week, where there's all the talk of summer books, I've been making my list and thinking about what I'm going to take with me. And for the past few years, I've always loaded them onto my Kindle and dutifully having a very slim device to take with me in my suitcase so you don't have to you don't have to put any of your luggage in the hold, all that sort of stuff. And finally, I'm giving up on it. I'm giving up on it because I love a book. I love the actual feel of the book. I like being able to thumb it. I like being able to see the sand collecting it and put the corners down and actually, actually, indeed, sometimes make some notes on it. So I'm throwing away my Kindle, which is slightly bust anyway, and going to the bookshop and buying lots of books. It means I won't have room for half the shoes I want to take with me. But since I've given up on high shoes now, it doesn't matter at all. So I'm just in love with having proper books back in my suitcase, ready for the beach. Oh, not sure I'm going to the beach this year, but basically having for the holidays. <laughs> yeah, I, I had an issue once where I was on a plane and I, I think I must have looked suspicious because they thought I was a security risk. And as a result, wouldn't let me take any electronics with me on the flight. So they took my phone off me, my laptop off me, everything and my Kindle. Mm. So as a result, I was sitting on quite a long flight with absolutely nothing to do that is terrible i know and since then i've really always make sure i have a physical book in case they try and take it away but, from but me but for what had you done that made them wanted to take away all your devices is it does it can you tell our listeners yeah i i i i don't, I don't think it's very interesting though but i was <laughs> i was on a flight going to israel and i was um tutoring a little girl who was russian uh, and that's the reason they were flying me out there and they asked me a series of questions like who bought your ticket? And I was like, oh, this Russian man who oh. I don't know the first name of. And then they were like, and then they were like, is he on the flight with you? And I was like, I'm actually not sure. I'm just getting picked up from the airport okay. by okay. a car. And then he arrived and I went, oh, that's him. And they went, okay, can you go speak to him? And I went, oh no, he actually can't speak English and I can't speak Russian. We only talk through a 10 year old girl. And at that point they were like, ah, 
absolutely not. You're not having anything on this flight. <laughs> I do think that sounds pretty suspicious. I like the idea of the cabin crew working to keep us safe by making that judgment. The worst thing is that my hair was so knotty, they had to look through my hair. I got properly searched and they started like having to deconstruct my knots to check there was nothing hidden in each one of them. Knots aren't the problem. Were there any knits? <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe that was the issue. Um, well, my topic this week is similar to yours because you did give me a slight sneak hint that this is what you were going to be talking about. Um, and I've been thinking about the fact that uh, I was speaking to some of my male friends recently and we were thinking about the children's books we used to read. And I noticed that... A lot of my male friends never read the classic female books that we all that we all read. Yeah. They, that we all read the ones that were by male audiences. We all read Catcher in the Rye. We all read Lord of the Flies. We all read all those. But they never read Little Women, Jane Eyre, any of those. I think there's something quite sad about that. That is extraordinary to think about. I must say. I think I think maybe they do later in life when they get a bit older. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. But you're right, they don't inform young boys the way all those uh, adventure stories that were sort of originally, I suppose, written for boys are read by the girls and inform the girls' lives. But what, what about all the other female officers who are now active? Like Ma- Ma- Mallory Blackman, like P.D. James, like Agatha Christie. They are there. Yeah, but it's interesting that um, you know P.D. James, all those ones, they have to pretend that they're not written by women oh that's true and a lot of those other books i mean mary blackman is 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 half from a man's point of view half from a woman's but then most of the children's books written by women a lot of them that end up being read by men and by boys and girls have male protagonists in fact i saw uh, a study that said that two-thirds of the best-selling children's book have male protagonists and that uh, in children's books, even inanimate objects like crayons or animals are 73% more likely to be male than female. The crayons are male? I know. What about the felt tips? Can they be female? I, I just, I don't think they're thinking. <laughs> in fact, I'd actually like to just read this poem that I found on it by Scarlett Curtis, the journalist, uh, called My Brothers Have Not Read Little Women. And it went, We sailed to Treasure Island, became Lord of the Flies. We saw ourselves in Holden Sea, damaged, sad and wise. We gave our time to Oliver, our hearts to Spider-Man. Followed Charlie to the factory, took flight with Peter Pan. Your words are universal, your characters are true. Your stories transcend gender, but women write books too. That's so good. And as you reeled off those examples, I thought about the women in them. Um, in Peter Pan, there's Wendy, who basically becomes an alternative mother. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the women do not star, really, no in those in books. No women in Lord of the Flies. No women in Lord of the Flies, that's true. Mm. And in Oliver, oh, a, a rather lovely but dead mother. Anyway, do let us know if you disagree and that you were a boy whose favourite books were all written and starring women, because I'd love to hear from you. I have to tell you, Flora, when I first uh, became a member of Parliament, I was sitting on the back benches and a rather um, friendly uh, Conservative MP came up to me, had heard about my uh, outspoken feminism on various issues, and in order to ingratiate himself to me, said, do you know, do you know that George Eliot is a woman? <gasps> Shock! <laughs> I was able to reassure him I did, and I made a few other recommendations as well. So now for our main topic on cancel culture and whether you can joke about anything nowadays. 
cancel culture. It's such an extraordinary sort of alliterative phrase, but I'm yeah. not entirely clear what it means. So before we sort of delve into uh, if it's a good thing or a bad thing or the purpose of it, Flora, you tell me what you think it means. I agree. It sounds very it's alliterative. It sounds all Gilead, Gestapo, kind of yeah. terrifying. Um, what people mean by cancel culture is this culture of people being cancelled particularly online so the idea that someone says something wrong and then suddenly people flock to say they're they're cancelled they don't exist we're not gonna we're gonna boycott their products we're not gonna buy their things they're they're but in our bad books is effectively but, but, what it but means. it's not the cancel suggests that you're somehow removing them from twitter you're absenting them but they're not i think it's quite a babyish phrase you know cancel culture it's like we used to say some sending somebody to coventry what's that mean Sending someone to Coventry, you really don't know what that means. I've never, never heard that term. I would but, just assume you were going to Coventry. It no, sounds all right. Okay, that's a, that's a good gag. But actually, what it means is refusing to engage with somebody, literally ignoring them. So in a family, if you had a lot of kids, you'd say, I'm going to send someone to Coventry, and then you just ignore them like they are. They've got the invisibility cloak on, let's say. Where's it come from? Uh, I'm afraid I will have to check that. That's a brutal question to me live on air. I know, because you were sounding so like, I can't believe you haven't heard of Coventry, and now I'm trying to call you out. Well, where's it. cancel culture from then? It's pretty self-explanatory. No, but then somebody must have invented it. What's it? Uh... I, I think just social media. Yeah, no, I... no, you don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I think that the cancel culture is created as this big, scary scary figure that's going to stop anyone from having free speech or debating anything and actually it doesn't really exist in the way that it's portrayed because really it's not people with this huge platform it's not newspapers with huge readerships it's not big companies that are getting accused of cancel culture it's individuals that have all banded together in order to have anywhere near the same kind of uh, influence okay. as the others. So it's like sort of no platforming somebody. And you, of course, defended me when I was no platformed in Oxford. I, I, yeah, I got called out a lot on my attitude toward cancel culture because I'd defended you on no platforming. But the issue I had with the way that you were no platformed was that it was rude and it made the university look people at the university looked like they were one-sided, like they were narrow-minded, like they didn't allow debate. Whereas actually, I think that's not the case at Oxford. Oxford is home to a lot of people with a lot of different views. I mean, you can imagine, it's all it's full of like Etonians and Herovians, all those people. <laughs> it's not just full of left-wing kids, it's full of people from everywhere. And uh, I read a study recently that showed that um, people always think that they're going to be given a lower grade if they're if they're right wing but in fact they aren't marked differently but people do temper their views they do worry that they'll be viewed yeah. differently but it is the home oxford of no platforming there's been more no platforming at oxford than anywhere else but i do think some people don't deserve platforms and uh, i don't think it would have been wrong for this women's group to have actually said you know what a lot of people do not like Amber Rudd and feel like she was offensive and therefore she is not the right person to be here on Women's Day. And I think that would have been fine, but they shouldn't have uh, they shouldn't have done it last minute when you were there. It, it was it made them look narrow-minded and rude. They should have pre-planned well, it and done it properly. There's a very simple way of doing that, which is just not to invite me in the first place. Yeah, and I think that's fine. Yeah, and uh, the issue about who we do debate with and who we don't... I always think should the line should be pushed as far as you can. It's not about good taste. It's not about whether you agree with them. It's about engaging in a proper debate. If you engage in a proper debate, you will discover the truth and you will show up the people who are wrong. And the example I would use is that it was very controversial when Nick Griffin, who was head of the BNP, such a nasty fascist organisation, 
was given a platform on Question Time. And the BBC were vilified by some people for allowing that to happen. But actually what happened is that he totally bombed. He was shown up to be racist and thick. And as a result, one of the reasons is that it is one of the reasons that he, the BNP itself collapsed because his leadership was reve- revealed to be so unpleasant. So sometimes a platform can help destroy something and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Okay, but I think that one example doesn't allow for all the other times where I've seen people with far right or far left opinions get a platform just because, let's face it, it makes better viewing. It makes better clicks. People would rather see Nigel Farage online going off on some group of immigrants because people that like it will view it and retweet it and people that don't like it will view it and retweet it and say this is wrong yeah but be careful with Nigel Farage because you know his party won the European elections last year so he was entitled to those platforms but but he was eventually but not right at the beginning there no, were that's points fair where enough. he was getting given a platform when the Lib Dems were nowhere to be seen and Nigel Farage was always there that's true the second that's true and they had um, seats in parliament and he did not so that is reasonable you don't want it to be a kind of t- titillation thing of having somebody really controversial on a platform in order to just provoke. I really think a lot of the uh, language around cancel culture and the issues has come because of the trans debates, which I don't even want to call a trans debate because I I don't think it really should be debated. But anyway, the questions around trans issues, because it has such a generational line and people are really split on whether or not it should be debated or it is even a question or whether that is where the line goes. But I think a good example is uh, with Munro Bergdorf, who is a model and a trans activist and a few years ago was an ambassador for L'Oreal and she made comments about about Black Lives Matter, which at the time a number of white consumers from Mumsnet, I think, had an issue with it, thought it was anti-white and racist, which is is and was completely absurd but as a result l'oreal dropped her that was quite a good example of i would say someone being cancelled and yet the term cancel culture wasn't really used about her then now jk rowling for example is is having has had a lot of uh people who support the trans community call her out and say what i think is fair that her uh, language and the way she's been talking is completely unacceptable and suddenly everyone is calling out oh this is cancel culture going to the extreme but it's not she's not really been cancelled in any meaningful way she has a huge platform she has more followers than there are trans people her children's book has i think gone straight to the top of the charts why is that one that example of monroe bergdorf not cancel culture and that one with jk rowling somehow is cancel culture And yet the opposite has happened. Okay, I'm still quite confused, but maybe talking to our guests will help shed some light for me. So now we're going to be joined by Camilla Long. Camilla is, of course, a top Sunday Times journalist, uh, writing on a whole host of different things, but also an interviewer and a critic, and is no stranger to criticism herself, shall we say. So uh, first question, Camilla, do you enjoy being a journalist and with newspapers changing and clicks becoming more important and journalism having its own troubles, is it still enjoyable being a journalist? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I was, I'm not going to say no to that. It can be a little bit um, fresh sometimes, especially at the moment. Um, actually, I've just, I've just written 
a TV review about watching telly and sort of interrogating yourself as you watch telly and wondering why you're thinking, because I've reviewed A, a Suitable Boy, um, which, you know, I, I, I thought was a bit slow and I kind of was watching it and I was sort of thinking, you know, am I, you know, meant to be super impressed by this wonderful, you know, all Asian cast? Am I meant to respond to it differently because it's an all Asian cast? You know, why do I feel it feels like almost every other BBC period drama and the fact that it's an all Asian cast makes no difference? If I say that, will it feel racist or will it kind of flick those kind of switches with people today, which is, you know, it's a strange position to be in as a journalist, asking yourself these odd questions all the time, like sort of checking yourself all the time. And I think obviously a lot of that is to do with social media and a lot of that is to do with the, you know, weird experience of having a camera on you the whole yes. time. Yes, I mean, I, I'm familiar with that having been obviously a politician, but do you think it has got worse or do you think that because of social media, because everybody has a public voice, it's just they've now found a voice in which to leap in and criticise or judge all the time? I think the method of delivery has made it worse. I don't think that people haven't been thinking these thoughts for thousands of years. I don't think anything new is happening here, but what happens is that back in the day, you know, it was much more difficult to sort of produce your turd and put it in an envelope and send it to Julie Birchall. And today, I mean, it's almost recreational, isn't it? You kind of get online and it's so easy to just kind of mind fart everything. What do you think of the term cancel culture and the way that it's become such a used word and phrase now? I find that it's quite easy to ignore being cancelled and I think people should do it a lot more. I think that we feel that it's a bad thing being cancelled but actually it's sort of a non-event really and actually about 10 days ago I had a sort of Twitter issue which went in a direction I wasn't expecting so it started off as the usual kind of you know tweet storm and you know coming along to Nazi kind of thing and I just thought well this is you know this happens sometimes we'll just write it out but then to my surprise a day later, Twitter actually um, took down my column, which is what it was all about, and and locked me out of the site. And I sort of felt that that was that was edging into a free speech free speech problem zone. You know, I believe that everybody has the right to call me a Nazi and to call me say I've written terrible things, but I also have the right to say them. So I think the balance has gone off a bit. Now. This was after you wrote the basically anti-mask piece about mask Nazism, I think was in the headline and people got fairly angry about that. And then uh, a lot of the, when you wrote your copy, you wrote about how it makes good copy, but I don't enjoy the experience of being killed by 50,000 eggs. It makes you feel like the wrong sort of person. Is that, is it, was it a horrible experience, that whole process? It's very disarming. I mean, Amber, you you will have had this. Oh, yes. When it first happened to you, you must have thought, what on earth is going on? People have, you know, there's a willfulness to it, which feels quite sort of frightening in a way. But what you're mostly thinking is, I'm so annoyed I've got myself into this stupid situation where I'm defending a perfectly reasonable thing. And I've allowed these people who I, you know, don't even think uh, you're doing it in a performative way in an insincere way I've allowed these people to kind of like pile on in a way that is not a kind of conversation I want and that's to sort of in- inevitable really that one feels that um disarmed and, and irritated that you've let 
everybody who wants to attack you into the slipstream of your mind. I think that, I mean, Flora was explaining earlier to me about cancel culture. And I feel that part of its appeal and why it's got so much attention is it's rather good, slightly babyish phrase, but I'm not convinced there's any real momentum behind it. Well, I hope there isn't. I mean, I do feel, you know, as I say, I think that, you know, if you kind of have been through it once and then you come out the other end and realise that life is much the same and the crucial thing is that the people who you care about don't think any differently about you, um, then, you know, it's just another, you know, it's one of another one of life's experiences. And in a way, you know, as, as I suppose as a journalist, but not as a politician, you're you're there to kind of push boundaries. You're there to say, look, I've said this, you know, how do we feel about that? And I think in a way, cancel culture is particularly toxic for journalists because it is partly our job to say, well, you know, how do we feel about using the phrase mask narcissism? I believe it's absolutely fine. It's a tad inflammatory, but it should be fine. Comedy uses the word Nazi. And, you know, I think I once called Mary Berry a jam Nazi. So where are we going to go with that? <laughs> <laughs> do you think that, that it is changing publishing that this culture do you think this cult do you think it is actually getting worse and it is going to get worse to the point where you really can't say anything or do you think it's just a moment in time and actually you can still write whatever you want you just have to accept you're going to get a lot of hate from a lot of people that don't like you i think a fight back is going to begin i think that oh. people are going to start ignoring it and not really caring what what people think and it's going to become a thing to flout the council culture and I think also that the biggest, it is the, the biggest problem is faced by Facebook and Twitter and these social platforms, how they deal with this, that they have a huge problem with it. What happened to me was unacceptable. And um, it's certainly not something that even a decent publisher would allow to happen. So that's when I wrote the articles that I think that it ceased to behave like a platform and is now behaving like a shonky publisher and nobody will want to be part of that. They definitely but, don't um, want to be described as publishers themselves because it gets them into all sorts of difficulty. Well, completely. And, but that's my, my experience of the last 10 days is exactly what it's, that's what, exactly what it's doing. What I wrote should no way have come down. And I will say, you know, 10 days on still, I've had absolutely no response from them. Um, on, on that. Well, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that um, Home Secretaries and Prime Ministers and Secretaries of State for Culture, Media and Sport have been um, arguing over this and trying to engage with the social media companies to get more action for the past 10, 15 years. And every now and again, they have some success. But it seems to me that Twitter has its own culture and, other, and Facebook as well. They have their own culture, which is they really dislike the stuff on the far right and they tend to move more quickly on that than they do the stuff on the far left so I think themselves they're already um, moving slightly towards publishing because they have this different culture which does culture bias exactly Flora which does define them so I think it's still evolving but you know as we know they can do such damage to people I mean you know you and I as sort of people who've been criticized a lot one way or another on Twitter have established ourselves with some sort of authority but there's also terrible pilings of people who are quite sort of um, immature and young and might find it difficult I mean I don't know whether you feel Flora that some of people who are younger are more vulnerable to this sort of bullying and it has consequences yeah I think I think I think they're too sl- I think they often get conflated this idea of cancel culture and this idea of bullying online because I think the much bigger issue than the cancelling because as you said 
Camilla, you can mostly ignore the cancelling and therefore people aren't really getting cancelled. The bigger issue is that there's a lot of online abuse on uh, on the internet and on social media where people feel they can say things with the anonymity of a, of a fake name and a fake profile that they would never say uh, to people to their face. And I do think that's a, a major problem. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You wrote a really interesting article about three weeks ago about cancel culture. However, you did say in one bit of the article that we can agree that there are some opinions that do not deserve a platform. Yeah. And this probably to people of slightly older than you, that would be a terrible thing to say. And I just wondered where that ca- came from. Yeah, I got, I found it so interesting that that was the sentence that I got pulled up on the most. So I think that yeah. article had like a thousand comments, none yeah. of which were in support of me. They were all, almost all talking about that line. But I don't think that's controversial. I think, you know, you would never have a debate with Holocaust deniers. So I think there is a point where certain opinions don't deserve a debate anymore and shouldn't be given I don't know. Point. I mean, if you take an, obviously an absolutist, absolutist position on free speech, you would say that all of these things should be up to debate. And actually what your, your um, you have, you know, just as much right not to hear these things as you have the right to hear them and be open to having your mind change. But if you read, if if there was a Holocaust denialism debate or a Holocaust denial article in a newspaper, surely you would think that that shouldn't be there, that shouldn't be debated. Yeah, but that's that's, that's an edited publication. So what, what, if we talk about media, I mean, obviously, in certain media, there are Holocaust deniers, as just as there are flat earthers, just as there are people, you know, who are at the extreme ends of the trans debate. And we, I feel that somewhere like Twitter should be much more open to that kind of stuff. But so Wiley, you wouldn't have thrown off Twitter. You think he should have been, he should have been kept on and his opinions should have been left as they were. Um, one problem with being locked out of your Twitter account is you can't actually see <laughs> stuff on Twitter. From what I gather, um, Wiley uh, said things that were totally unacceptable. I'd like to know if he is going to be prosecuted for a hate crime. Yeah. Because obviously we do have hate crime laws. If he isn't, then I think a few more questions need to be asked why he isn't being prosecuted for it. I, I haven't, I mean, I haven't read anything that says he is. Um, I find those kind of views abhorrent. What I would prefer to happen is that everybody left Twitter <laughs> and, and didn't listen to them rather than, you know, this sort of, you know, 
blanket people can't say what they think i mean it's it's a real you know it's a very difficult area because none of us want to hear those things so do you now feel that this has the current climate has changed the way you write are you now more cautious do you have more debates with your editor do they ever step in and go oh camilla maybe you shouldn't write that oh no never no 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 i don't think anything i've done has changed sadly for everybody (laughs) (laughs) we love it Um, (laughs) no I haven't changed I think um I write my pieces and then I'll go through I will go through them with a kind of like probably a slightly finer tooth comb just to check that I haven't written anything that's horrendously offensive um and I'll keep it in when I find it Well, Camilla was not happy about being taken down by Twitter. Yeah, I think it slightly confirms what I was saying, though, that cancel culture seems like a big baddie, but really the angry people shouting at you on Twitter don't have much power. It's Twitter itself and the other big conglomerates that have the ability to to silence people and that perhaps is, is a bigger conversation. I think that's fair enough. And I'm so surprised, though, that Twitter took her article and her down off it, given that they get campaigned against so often to take down people who are outrageous. I mean, not just outrageous funny, but say or encourage people to do terrible things. And Camilla to be taken down like that. I mean, she, she, she clearly took it quite personally, and I can understand why. And she made this wider point about Twitter behaving like a publisher. Yeah, which has also become an issue with them with a lot of Trump's comments because they now have that, or they did put that warning under Trump's uh, things, which I, I... I do think I do think it's right for them to take down abusive people like Wiley, like other people that say wrong things. But I am of the opinion that maybe Trump should be an exception because he is the president of the United States. I'm not sure you can have a warning on him. Well, I I almost agree with that. I mean, the the interesting thing is about that uh, President Trump, sometimes his comments are effectively in contravention of Twitter terms and conditions because they incite hatred and potentially violence. And the terms and conditions are what you have to accept if you go on Twitter. And there are other people who do it, sure, but because he's the president, they can certainly spot him doing it pretty immediately. So either they're going to stick to their terms and conditions and make them apply to everybody or not. But I think that there is also a bias here because there often is in most of these social media companies. The fact is that the culture tends to be young and more towards the left. Yes, there's definitely, for example, the Labour Twitter page and the far less numbers on social media are far, far higher. They're some of the biggest views. Every left wing politician will have far, far more followers than the right wing. So I agree the the platform in itself is left wing in the way that most people are of the left. That is definitely the case. But it was... um, Interesting to hear from Camilla that she thought that there was going to be a backlash against what what she and people call cancel culture. Yeah, I mean, you've got people like Camilla who are determined not to be bullied effectively into changing their attitude and the way they write. So she will persist. There will be a fight back and we'll see. We'll see what happens. (laughs) 
So now we're joined by Catherine Ryan, who's a hilarious comedian, I'm sure you all know. Uh, and we're going to be talking to her about uh, our subject. So one of the things, Catherine, that mum said earlier when we were having our discussion was that comedians have to be so careful with what they say nowadays. Is that a statement that you would agree with, that you find? Well, I love the way you said mum. I think that's how my daughter speaks of me as well. One thing that mum said earlier. Um, no, I feel like I have never been careful about the things that I say. I have always applied empathy to my work, and I think I'm critical in a way that is fair. I think the comedians who are very loud about having to be careful what they say those are comedians who are saying uh, probably pretty abusive things to begin with. And I do appreciate that sometimes a comedian with the best intentions can be can be misunderstood and people take offense to absolutely nothing. But that goes away. If someone takes offense uh, over a joke that wasn't actually... Uh, an inflammatory, abusive, derogatory joke, then that always goes away. So I don't worry about it. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, before we um, started this interview, I looked at some of your uh, YouTube shows, and I particularly enjoyed the one on Hamilton, I have to say. Thank you. And in fact, I, I watched it, and I thought with Floor, why didn't we see it like that? when we went to watch it, because it is outrageous, some of the language. Well, I have this disease where I see everything through a very sometimes uh, dangerous feminine lens, because I can't just enjoy art normally. Well, it has to be pointed out. Um, But I wonder whether you don't feel that with all this uh, energy going into the so-called cancel culture, all the attacks now that take place on social media, because they can, that it might rain comedy in in a way that is going to be less entertaining that people because there's so much criticism available because people have you know the keyboard warriors have so much opportunity to give their views that it might inhibit perfectly reasonable comedy because people feel they don't want to become a target well, I, i'm definitely vehemently against cancel culture i think it's very dangerous i don't participate in pylons like that i think we're just learning about the danger of harnessing that power of social media and targeting one person with it to ruin their lives. I mean, I think that is bad. I think that I just, I did offend certain people with my last stand-up show for a variety of, of reasons, but I am not reigning in my comedy at all. Were I doing comedy at the expense of impoverished people, ethnic minorities, vulnerable people, I would think twice about that and rein that in. I know that I had another joke in that special about Caitlyn Jenner, specifically Caitlyn Jenner. And the joke was at my own expense. It said, I spent so long wanting to look like one of the Kardashians. I'm not even bothered. It's the dad. I'll take it. Great. Finally, I look like one of them. And the reality is, out of the Kardashian women, I look the most like Caitlyn. Some people briefly misinterpreted that as an anti-trans joke. However, it isn't. Caitlyn Jenner is a trans woman. She is also their dad. They refer to her as dad. And do I look like Kim? No, I look like Caitlyn Jenner. So that went away very quickly. I don't rein it in at all. I think the standard of comedy is high. I think when we uh, look at some of the professional irritants online, 
and the things that they spew, the hateful nonsense that they receive criticism for, those are not comedians. There's a new industry, a whole new genre of professional irritant. So if you, what do you think of the comedians that get called out for things that they've joked about or said in the past that by today's lens we do view as really unacceptable? That's very tricky to transport someone's behavior from the 80s or 90s, especially in comedy, and put it in today's world. But, I mean, even the behavior that I participated in when I was a teenager, I would sing every word to a rap song because I felt entitled to do that. I didn't understand the historical significance. I didn't have the frame of reference to understand how damaging that was. Now I know that. Um, I don't necessarily, no, I don't think that people should really be, uh, I don't think that material from the 80s or 90s should be held to today's standard in most cases, but I do believe it's a case-by-case basis. Um, Some comedians have been around for a really long time, and the reality of the situation is every comedian wants to make an audience laugh, and culture was different then. We did laugh at different things. We didn't know better. We thought they were acceptable. Now I'm glad we know differently. So we've talked about, uh, we we were on the phone earlier to Camilla Long, who's a journalist who's been, uh, Mm -hmm. had some attacks herself. And we talked about the fact that um, the whole cancel culture and the judgment that goes with people who take certain views is is much more aggressive now. You sound like you're able to navigate it effectively. But one of the things she said is she thinks there'll be a backlash. She thinks that nowadays people are being very having to be quite cautious in what they say or are being encouraged to be more cautious and that it's going to go the other way and people are going to stop cancelling people and acting out against it and just going the other way and saying whatever they want effectively. I think we're in the middle of that as well. (laughs) I think there are two cultures. I think there are people who absolutely are professional irritants and they say things to be inflammatory, whether they mean those things or not. I think there are people who grossly misunderstand free speech. Free speech means you won't be detained by your government for your views. It doesn't mean that you might not lose your job or people might disagree with you. Social media is a public forum. And when you want to write about uh, explicitly divisive subjects, some of that is to be expected. I think that backlash is happening now. People are intentionally being inflammatory, definitely. And then... There are people who are monitoring their behavior. I don't think that monitoring one's behavior to be more progressive and more effective and less harmful is a bad thing. I adjust my behavior all the time because I'm evolving, not because I'm afraid of an internet pylon necessarily. So I think it sounds silly. I I do just want to do the right thing. I don't want to cause harm to people. I want to understand everyone's position, and that is why... Uh, equally, I would be opposed to cancel culture. I see that as being very dangerous. And I was involved in an incident um, with an artist, a musician earlier this year, where there was an internet pylon of cancel culture against him. I opposed that as well. I think... That was when Slow Tie was quite uh, difficult with you on stage, let's say. And... um, people got quite angry and I've seen you talk about that uh in other interviews saying that actually a lot of the pylon he had uh he got a lot of it was because you were a female comedian and people kind of wanted to jump to your defense whereas actually 
you can handle yourself. You've been doing this for a number of years. You don't really need the whole of the internet to cancel someone on your behalf. Well, it is about context and there's so much nuance and there is a culture in a comedy club where he and I were equals and our interaction was at least for aiming towards comedy. And it's very different to the way a man treats a young woman at a bus stop, to the way that trolls target female MPs. Very, very different. And in a way, it's, it's sweet that people say, you, can't, you mustn't speak to a woman that way. Yes, correct. But there's always context and there are different scenarios. I do think back to the fact that um, just in terms of women in comedy, when I think about all the... I remember being a young teenager and watching all those panel shows that have comedians on them and always finding it so frustrating that there were usually five men and one token woman who was always so much a token woman. She usually wasn't even a comedian. She was often just from like, (laughs) the only way is Essex. And she was a pretty face that was there to be like, what's the offside rule? That that wasn't a good accent. But anyway, but now at least it's good to see that there are always a number of amazing female comedians on every panel show. And it's definitely changed. Have you felt that through your career? Yes, I feel peaceful and positive about the fact that it's changing. I'm also friends with a few right-wing comedians who are getting booked on these shows, and we need to hear from them as well. Friends with different socioeconomic background, you know, they're appearing on the show too. It isn't always these uh, public school boys, as I think it once was in this country, different ethnicities. It is changing. Is that changing quickly enough? I'm not sure. And now, even for myself, again, I'm always evolving and looking at things with a critical eye, it did not feel odd to me to be on a show with all white people for a long time. I didn't notice. And it's really important that now when that happens, it's jarring to me. It makes me very uncomfortable. I go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, um, equally, I'm very happy to be on shows with Jeff Norcott, who's um, a very talented conservative comedian. I love different voices. They they make me better. Knowing people from different backgrounds with different views, I feel enriches my experience and the viewers. You talk about how you've got lots of friends or you work with other comedians that perhaps have very different political point political opinions to you or a far right wing. Do you ever hear the jokes that they're making and think, oh my God, that's awful. Would you ever say anything? Do you ever... Is there a line that you find will upset you? Um, I don't have any friends that are far right wing. I have friends that are right wing. <laughs> um, <laughs> if the, the use of the word far there, no. Um, let me think. I, I mean, I can't think of any example. I, I think we all in comedy just want to have a laugh. And I I know that the extra step of policing behavior and editing, maybe people think that's less funny, but the reality is when everyone feels comfortable and the comedian on stage is comfortable, it is more of a laugh. So I haven't heard any jokes per se that make me uncomfortable. Jeff Norcott, one of my very best friends who's conservative, he talks about different issues going on in politics, but he never vilifies the poor or punches down that way and certainly never blames 
anything on a minority. I suppose jokes like that uh, would make me potentially feel very uncomfortable depending on the context. But no, he, he talks about growing up with a dad with one arm and what it was like in a council estate. And he, he has his views on politics. Now, he never offends me. There are some left-wing comedians, men recently, a few whom I've seen talk about periods. And women always get, oh, all they talk about is their menstrual cycles. I've never heard a woman genuinely do these period jokes. There are men doing them now, and they're not talking about their wives' or girlfriends' periods. They are talking about their daughters' first periods. And there's something about that that really makes me uncomfortable and grinds my gears. Because what a vulnerable point in a young woman's life. And these men are saying, okay, I'm going to talk about, you know, women's things now. I'm going to talk about my growing daughter's body and my experience and her reaction to her first period. That's the most recent thing that I've seen three times in a row and has actually made me quite uncomfortable. One of the things that I sometimes hear comedians say is that like comedy, you know, can change the world or can make important points. Do you feel that? Do you think it is the job of a comedian to to make change, to punch up, or do you, can it just be comedy? I think it can be both. I know comedians who prefer just to stick to that family, not offensive to anyone comedy, and that's really jolly sometimes, and I love hearing from them, and that is their authentic voice. That's what they wanna say, and that's fine. For me, I do like to Trojan horse in some bigger ideas and issues sometimes. Sometimes those are a risk. Sometimes they are less of a risk. But I I do think that comedy is an excellent medium for Trojan horsing in some, uh, some of your own social values or at least your social reaction. When I do stand up... It's always my personal reaction to something that might incite, oh, you know, again, with the Hamilton example, a group of people go, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that story that way. And then they think about it. Or maybe they don't. And if they don't want to think about the deeper issue that I'm trying to convey, then it's the, hopefully the bit is silly enough on its own as well. I did a bit about Beyonce a long time ago that was actually uh, meant to be an intersectional conversation about the different ways that young white pop stars and young black female pop stars were sexualized when I was growing up. That's very complicated. That's not funny. (laughs) But it was just a little ounce of something in a physical comedy bit where I was basically just shaking my bum around. was incredibly honest with us really that she's very careful about what she is funny about her sort of her comedy center as it were and yet it's sort of effortless because she tries to be as she put it a good person she is a feminist she is careful about not offending people and if that's your kind of guiding principle she doesn't feel inhibited to be an honest comedian yeah she seemed to make the distinction between the wrong side which is people getting unfairly Uh, bullied or piled on or having their work torn apart just because of one tweet they did when they were 17 and then the other side who are just people asking to 
asking for you to adapt your language or not bully vulnerable groups or not be cruel, which is a completely fine request. And they're often conflated and merged. And she has her line too, which is, you know, there are people who should be on the receiving end of cancel culture type attacks. And, you know, that is a legitimate way to do it, but not for people who are, um, you know, moderate like she is. Yeah, I like that I saw uh, Ricky Gervais did a quote a while ago uh, asking people to stop saying you can't joke about anything anymore. What he said is that you can, you can joke about whatever you like, uh, and so, but some people won't like it and they will tell you they don't like it. And then it's up to you as to whether or not you care about that. It's a good system. If you say something contrary, if you say something offensive, you can't go, it's my free speech to say that, but you can't respond. If you say something offensive, people are going to let you know they don't like yep, it. Yep, that's fair enough. Uh, Ricky nails it again. when we'll be discussing should we all be vegetarian now we'll be joined by the Bosch boys Henry Firth and Ian Theasby and also Jeremy Clarkson guess which side's which <laughs> join us we hope unless you cancel well casting doesn't exist we'll be fine well we hope You've been listening to Split Opinion with Flora Gill and Amber Rudd. It's a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. Tune in to Times Radio every Sunday at 7pm to hear us live. And you can download the podcast to listen on demand. We're available at Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and from the shiny new Times Radio app.